Welcome to Joanna and the Maestro. Hello, Maestro. Hello and welcome. And it's time for Ask the Maestro. I love these episodes, Stevie, because people write in with such interesting questions and observations. And first of all, I've got a lovely letter from Adrienne, who signs it with all her love. So I love her already. And she says, hello, Joanna the Maestro. We love the show and we think the world of you. My twin daughters, Sophia and Daphne, are both very musical, playing the guitar and drums and piano. They might have their own band one day. Well, I hope they do. They're nine years old and they're very keen to learn and play everything. Adrian's hoping that you could speak to us about the way parents influence their children with music and how child prodigies can be best guided as they seem to have such an amazing grasp of music already. What do you do to keep a little spirit alive and not squash it flat by too much regulation? I don't think in the main parents squash talented children in any way, do they? It's a good question, Adrian, but I'm thrilled that your two daughters are already showing a big interest and obviously spending some of their time at home on, on those instruments. I think the most critical thing is that parents have to make that decision amongst themselves. It is a decision about how they're going to introduce their children to the world in terms of art, in terms of practicality, in terms of science, literature, poetry. It's so important that they make a decision to do that early on because children are like sponges, as we've said before, and they soak everything up without prejudice. They make no judgments. They soak it all up. Now, musical education... Put very simply, parents have to go along with the child. They must know what the child is doing and move with them. So they must be interested, one, and they must grow in the same way that they are seeing their child grow. So they are not alone. The child is not alone or being stymied because parents are saying, oh, look, I haven't got time for that. I'm watching the news or reading the paper or watching Corrie. The other interesting thing you raise is the idea of prodigies. Well, it's important to remember that children pick up a lot of technical ease and virtuosity with instruments. But the piano, after all, it only has white notes and black notes, and the piano's stave is five lines. Children pick all this up very quickly, and they can move on very quickly. But the important thing is that Actual musicality and depth of interpretation only comes with age. So while they are being prodigies and advancing a lot quicker than perhaps you would think other children are, that's a special thing. But the same applies. You mustn't feel that they're running ahead of you. You must go with them and share some of their interests. But what if you're a parent and you have got no musical ability, but your children love playing the guitar and the drums, as little Sophia and Daphne do. Well, let me put it this way. My mother loved music, and she learned the violin very briefly in her very young life. But she never learned another instrument. And she had an understanding or pleasure in music, but she didn't really grasp the complexities of it. However, it was the encouragement that mattered. And that means, in very simple terms, I could come home and play her some music that, completely uneducated as she was in music, she would listen to it with full attention Mm. and open her mind. She didn't close her mind off and say, well, that's not for me. She opened her mind up. So it's just that simple thing 
of giving the time to your children when they are involved in music and going with them, talking to them about it. Can I put something forward which I have noticed, which is that quite often it's lovely when you say, Sensei loves it, we'll give them a little toy piano, which when you switch this note appears to play the piano for you or does too much. I don't think that's an advantage at all. No. You know, these things which have regulated keys or things that you can do and you press this and you only have to play. And electronic. electronic things. Because they make you sound better than you are and you're no good and you haven't really worked out what it is. Also, you haven't invented anything for yourself. I think the best thing with a child and a piano is to leave the child with the piano. Give it some simple things it can do, like holding two notes, a note apart, if you know what I mean, so they can hear the sounds of chords, hear the sounds of intervals and things like this. See by running your fingers up and down how pretty that sounds and then learning, practicing how to do it. But they've got to do it on a proper instrument. I think toy instruments, children tire of them because they don't sound very nice. Little plastic tin drums. No, it's, no. It doesn't help. You'd be better to give them, no. save up your money, get them a big snare drum, frankly. <laughs> I think so. Christmas present of a snare drum. Thanks so much, Adrian. Thank you so much for that. Um, and well done, little Sophia and Daphne, and keep on playing. Keep on listening to music and trying to copy. I bet you do anyway. Try to copy your favourite guitarists and listen to drummers and hear the beats that they get. What was the first opera you ever attended? <gasps> Good grief. I can say, shall I say mine first? Aida at the Royal Opera House. Wow. When I was about 19. Well, I have to admit that I didn't go to the opera. I was taken by a boyfriend and Grace Bunbury was singing. We went up as a group to see, I think it was Tristan at Covent Garden when I was a student at Cambridge. How old? About 21? 20? No, 19. 19. Very young student. Cambridge. Who is the most overrated composer in your opinion? Oh, God. <laughs> in your opinion, that means I've got to give an answer. Just a very quick answer. Overrated composer. That means somebody who is at the top of the charts and I don't rate them. <laughs> don't string this out. Just say. Ah, ah, well, you know, I'm not like that. <laughs> the most overrated. Actually, I can't think of such a thing. Overrated. No, I don't think like that. And because I married him, nor do I. Okay. Sandeep's written to us. Dear Joanna, and he quite rightly comes through me. Sandeep, thank you. The question I have for the maestro is this. <laughs> what does the maestro want us, the audience at a concert, to take away from the performance of that evening? Or, to put it differently, does that thought occur to him when preparing for a performance? Do you think what you want the audience to apart from obviously loving the music. Put that way, it's slightly difficult. I don't think at all about the audience when I'm rehearsing, nor does the orchestra or the singers in an opera. We just rehearse to get the piece as beautifully correct as we can and then apply our experience and our musical maturity or our, our understanding of the libretto or the story to present something that's satisfying. So... Us performers, do we think of what we want an audience to take away? No. What we think of is how to prepare this piece in a way that will have the maximum impact on a listener. And it's a two-way contract. People who buy a ticket for a concert are going to give their concentration and their full attention to what the musicians are doing. And I can tell you, I'm reading some Edith Wharton, and in the late 19th century, people talked through entire operas. 
1870. They talked through all the hours and then would stop occasionally when a well-known tune came up. So I'm afraid I hope we've moved on. <laughs> but I can see what Sandeep's question is, because I imagine if there's a huge requiem mass or something, you want them to come away feeling in some ways comforted or elevated or melancholy or something. I mean, if you do a Rossini opera, Rossini, as I return as ever to one of my great favourites, he's such a jocundity, to use an old word, such joviality, such heartbreakingly funny and lively music that you come away feeling hugely happy after the Barber of Seville and after any of his overtures, after the Silken Ladder or something, you come away feeling miles better. Yeah, but it's not only about moods. Of course, it's nice to have a feeling at the end of a show, like my spirits are raised, or, oh dear me, I feel very sympathetic with Mahler at the end of his ninth you symphony. You can notice that the maestro hates the idea of feelings about anything. <laughs> no, you, you don't. No, but, but, but more than that, one, one wants people, with a Rossini opera, you want them to have engaged with the characters a little bit and seen some adventure going on between people. And you want to understand something from that. So, Rossini, by the way, isn't all No, absolutely... I did try to work that into the sentences. <laughs> He's not all fun and light. Some of his stuff's quite dark, isn't it? But William you're quite Tell. right. If you're preparing a comedy, you do want the audience basically to be, to be smiling. Yes. Well, as theatre actors, it's very interesting because we try to do the play as well as we possibly can, whether it's a comedy, a tragedy, a drama and then hope the audience likes it as much as we do. We've prepared it as well as we can. Sometimes with comedy, you know you can play with the audience, which an orchestra never does and and a conductor never does. We know that if we've got them absolutely in fits, you can time the next line to cap it. And we know if they're sitting in stony silence that whatever it is is not working very well and you can scud along through it. But that doesn't happen in music, so we can ignore the whole part of that last sentence I said. (laughs) Thank you so much for listening to this episode. We'll be back again soon.